minor prophets. Uh, the prophet Jonah. You may not know much about Obadiah. You may not know much about Nahum. You may not know much about Habakkuk. But my guess is you know about Jonah. I was going to say, which would really be over the top, it's a rather fishy story. Um, so I won't say that. But you know about Jonah because you know about the fish. But there's a whole lot more going on in this story than just uh, the fish. So look with me at chapter 3 and verse 1. And we're going to kind of pick this up in midstream. You know that Jonah was called to preach to Nineveh. And you know that he refused to do it. And, and then he got swallowed by the fish. And then he got spit up on the land. And then... The word of the Lord came to him a second time, and he was to go and preach, which he did. And, and as he feared, and as God is so wonderfully capable of doing, real repentance occurred. And Jonah didn't like it. And that's sort of where we pick this story up. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and, sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Um, this, is a, this is a word that's fairly easy to understand, O oh Lord with our minds. But I confess to you that I fear it's pretty difficult for us to embrace with our hearts. So, Lord, come by your Spirit and certainly give us understanding, but make our hearts pliable and make us willing to follow hard after you and to see people the way you see people and to long for what you long for as you see people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
So we all know about the fish, and, uh, and again, I don't want us to be distracted by the fish, but the fish obviously serves as uh, an integral part of this story. But there's a bigger thing going on in this story, and, and it has to do with good guys and bad guys. Um, everybody's got bad guys in his or her life. Jonah had bad guys in his life. Basically, they were the Assyrians. Basically, they were the inhabitants of Nineveh. Uh, everybody's got bad guys in his or her life. Some of you have bad guys who have hurt you really, really deeply. They've wounded you very, very badly. How do you see them? How do you think about them? Some of you have bad guys who aren't people who've done bad things to you, but, you know, you see them as bad guys. We're in an election cycle. You've got good guys and bad guys, haven't you? How do you see the bad guys? How do you think about the bad guys? How do you view the bad guys? When you, when you think about the bad guys, what do you long for, for the bad guys? Good guys and bad guys, haven't we? Some in our experience and some not in our experience in a really acute and painful way, but sort of out there, out there in the world. Good guys and bad guys. Jonah, Jonah saw some bad guys, really perceived them as bad guys. And in the midst of all of that, there was something that he knew, and it was real, but there were some things that he forgot, and they were real. And I just uh, really want to plead with us and suggest to us that the only way we, we really can get free, and, and, and I'd really ask you to, to be honest with yourselves and, and sort of probe your own hearts and, and sort of plumb the depths of your own hearts in this respect. The only way that you and I can get free of the tyranny the imprisoning effects of the bad guys. I use those words intentionally, very purposefully. The only way I can get free of the tyranny and the imprisoning effects of the bad guys is if I remember what Jonah forgot. He knew something, but he also forgot some things. So let's start, let's start with the thing that he knew, and then let's move on to the things that he forgot. He knew that evil was real. He knew that evil was real. And just so you can kind of fill in the blanks, the things that he forgot... 
He forgot the greatness of God, he forgot the goodness of God, and he forgot the grace of God. So first of all, the thing that he remembered, the thing that he knew, the thing that he knew was that evil was real. It's really important, I think, uh, right out of the chute, to put this story in its context, which in the first place is at a real place in real time. I, I say this to you often. When you come to a story like Jonah, it's real easy to sort of pass it off as myth or fable. And if you read the commentators, there are a lot of commentators who want to do that. They want to reduce this thing to a parable. They want to reduce it to a kind of a fable. They want to reduce it to a moral lesson. Okay? I mean, go read Aesop's fables if you want moral lessons. Go read the mythology of Greece and Rome if you want moral lessons. Moral lessons, my friends, don't help me. But real people living at real places in real time who struggle with the real things that you and I struggle with in the midst of those real places in real times and who by the grace of God, by the grace of the real God who is really there, who overcome those things. Now that, that gets its hooks in me and that is a peg I can hang my life on. And that's where you start with Jonah. Not a mythological character, not a, a character from a fable, but a real flesh and blood guy who lived a real flesh and blood existence in a real flesh and blood and material kind of place. That's how Jesus viewed him. And, and no matter what you think about Jesus, no matter what conclusions you might have come to about Jesus, the one thing you have to acknowledge about Jesus is that he's an enormously significant person in the history of humankind. I mean, at the very least, obviously in this place, we believe he's a whole lot more than that. But he's a whole lot more righteous. He's a whole lot smarter. He's a whole lot more moral. He's a whole lot of everything, way more than I am. And so it seems reasonable that when he says something, I ought to pay attention to it. Now, we in this place believe that he is the, the incarnate Son of God. So that when he speaks, he speaks absolute truth. And if you have a question about that, if you have a doubt about that, I would love the opportunity to talk to you about it. But that's what we believe, so that when he speaks, he speaks the truth, and in the Gospels, he clearly understands Jonah to have been a guy who walked in a particular place, who had real flesh and blood, and who real, really struggled, and who really, in the mystery of God's providence and by God's appointment, really was swallowed by a really big fish, and really was vomited up out of that really big fish onto a really sandy beach or maybe a rocky beach in some real place. So you've got to start there. You have to start with the fact that Jonah was a real and substantial guy who lived a real life. But even more tellingly and more significantly, 2 Kings 14 tells us that Jonah was alive and preached and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, I don't... I want to do anything other than encourage you to take a look at 2 Kings. Uh, you can see it for yourself. Jonah is located in a particular place and time, some point, at some point between 786 B.C. and 746 B.C. That was the reign of Jeroboam II. And my guess is that his ministry extended beyond 
into the later part of that 8th century BC, extended beyond the reign of Jeroboam some years. I don't know how many, nobody does. But here's the significant thing. The significant thing about locating Jonah at a particular place and this particular place at this particular time. The Assyrians were the dominant world power of the day. And in the years of the reign of Jeroboam and beyond, they were consolidating their power. They were rising to the pinnacle, the apex of their power. And they were notoriously brutal militarily. Notoriously brutal. Militarily. Here's a comment that you can read for yourself if you have a copy of the Reformation Study Bible. You can find this on page 570. Just quoting for you what one of the commentators says about Assyria. All of this is to illustrate simply what God says to Jonah in the first verses of the prophecy, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, a city in Assyria, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Their evil, well, what was the nature of that evil? Well, listen. The Assyrian invasions of the 8th century B.C. were the most traumatic political events in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom. The most traumatic. We've just come through September 11th. We know something. I was talking to somebody this last week who saw the film footage again and was deeply disturbed by it. Rightly. Arguably the most traumatic experience certainly in recent memory, and for many of us in the entirety of our lifetimes. Maybe akin to the day of infamy. Maybe akin to the kind of thing that some of us experienced when Nazi death camps were liberated at the end of the Second World War. Traumatic political events, the most traumatic in the history of Israel, the entire history of the northern kingdom. The quote goes on, the brutal Assyrian style of warfare relied on massive armies superbly equipped with the world's first great siege machines manipulated by efficient corps of engineers. But psychological terror was the Assyrians' most effective weapon, and it was ruthlessly applied. With corpses impaled upon stakes, severed heads stacked in heaps, and captives skinned alive. Now, that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that shows up on Xbox video games. It shows up in Hollywood movies with these incredible special effects. And we get numbed to the reality of it. But Jonah was not numbed to the reality of what he had witnessed and heard about before he witnessed it. Ruthless. Brutal. Don't read the Old Testament 
and detach yourself from the realities that it describes. When the Assyrian armies made their incursions into Israel beginning in 738, less than 20 years after the reign of Jeroboam, that's the kind of thing that they did. And Jonah heard about it first and then saw it, witnessed it. And he didn't forget it. Evil is evil, and Jonah knew it. And so God's mercy in the face of real evil is simply staggering. It is simply staggering. Jonah had heard about these evils. He had probably witnessed these evils. He knew where they came from. They came from Assyria. They came from the city of Nineveh. And when God said, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to Nineveh, go tell them that their evil, true evil, has risen up before me. Go preach to that great city, a city that the text says was three days in breadth, which which probably means, and again, you know, you read the commentators and they're not exactly sure what is meant, but it probably means that if you were to walk through the city and you were to kind of go down the side streets and you were really to explore it, not exhausting the totality of it, but really learning about the city, it would take you three days just to do that. Not stopping any place and spending a night in a hotel, but just probing the city, the different districts. It'd take you three days on foot to do that. A compact city, a dense city. Go to Nineveh and preach the gospel in that place. And Jonah didn't want to go. And friends, the text doesn't say this, but can't we connect the the dots? Can't we say, isn't this an understandable reaction in Jonah? Can't we understand that he didn't want to go preach the gospel to the Assyrians because he knew what they were like and he had witnessed their incursions into his land and he had seen them rape and pillage and destroy his people and his country and he hated Assyrians. He hated them. They were the bad guys. And he didn't want to go. So let me pause here and let me ask you again. Who are the enemies for you? Who are the bad guys? Who are those in your life who have done or who are doing evil? I mean evil really hurtful things? Is it someone as a friend who has proven not to be a friend but who has betrayed you? Is it a work associate? Something like that. I want to tread so lightly and be so careful here, but I want to be so resolute about this. Is it a presidential candidate? Is it a political party? Is it an organization with a social agenda very different from yours, 
this group, that group. A group or a person for which and toward whom you might even feel or use the words hatred, resentment. Let me tell you, at one level, it's okay. All you're doing when you acknowledge that is all you're doing is crawling into Jonah's skin because that's exactly how he felt. But then how do you see these people? How do you see the people who make up that group? Do you see them through Jonah's lens, wanting their destruction, wanting to run from them, wanting for the wrath? You know, at the end of the story, Jonah leaves the city. He's done what God asked him to do, and he leaves the city, and he goes out on a bluff overlooking the city. It tells you that in chapter 4. And he makes a little hut for himself, and it's not sufficiently built, strong enough or whatever to protect him from the heat. He gets real hot in this, in this very arid, hot and dry part of the world. But he wants to go out there because he wants to see what will happen to the city. Do you see the bad guys through Jonah's lens wanting their destruction, wanting to run from them? Or do you begin by the grace of God to look at the bad guys through different eyes, through a different lens? And as you wrestle with those questions, you ask yourself again, this deep bitterness, this resentment, this even hatred towards someone who has hurt me, harmed me, some group that threatens me, Isn't that bitterness, isn't that resentment, isn't that hatred really a prison? And how do I begin to get free of it? Well, you begin to get free of it by remembering these three things that Jonah forgot. First, he forgot the greatness of God. Evil was real, it was a real evil, and he knew it. But in the midst of that, he forgot the greatness of God. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He wanted to get as far away as he could. As far away as he could from Assyrians. And so... He wanted to go to Spain. That's probably what's in view, way at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. So he went down to Joppa on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, the western end of the Mediterranean Sea. And he paid the fare, and he went on board, and he went with them in order to go away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, right. Try it. Try it. Away from the presence of God. Are you kidding? 
Jonah just a little while later when he finds himself in the midst of this storm which God has sent that is threatening to destroy him and the boat and everybody on the boat. Jonah begins to come to his senses in verse 9 of chapter 1. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And in your Bibles you'll note that the term Lord is all, it should be all in capital letters. It is the personal name of God, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The eternally self-existing and self-divining God of all of the creation. I am a Hebrew and I serve the Lord. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and the implication very clearly as the one who has made the sea and the dry land, as the one who is the author of the sea and the dry land, he has authority over the sea and the dry land. He has power and wisdom and strength to constrain the creation to serve his purposes. He is the Lord. Oh man, the devastation that Ike has left in his wake. And Ike, all 500 plus miles of Ike in his breath, fits snugly, not in the palm, not even in a crease, not even in a dimple in a crease, in the palm of the hand of Almighty God. What was Jonah forgetting? He's forgetting Sunday school. He's forgetting his catechism. He's forgetting the things that the Westminster Confession... Oh, that's why he didn't, because he didn't have the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's forgetting what David remembered in Psalm 139. What David knew and wrote about. You know this psalm. Psalm 139, verse 7 and following. Where can I flee from your spirit or where can I go from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can I go? Where can I escape the presence of God? You cannot escape the presence of God. The theologians make these distinctions when they, when they talk about God's greatness. They delineate his greatness in terms of these omnis. You remember the omnis? He is omniscient. He possesses all knowledge. Gosh, I wish I could take five minutes and talk to you about the knowledge of God and how extensive it is and what it means for God to know. But he's not only omniscient, he possesses all power. He is omnipotent. And then he is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. And when the theologians talk about his omnipresence, they distinguish two things. They distinguish his ubiquity, which means that he is everywhere from his immensity. What's the difference? The difference is this. To say that God is everywhere simply means that he fills all space. But to say that he is immense means this. It is to say that the totality of the being and power and glory of God is fully present in every point of space. 
So you see, you can't sneak around behind God's back and escape his notice. Because God is around behind his own back. You can't, you can't flee to a distant continent and, and think, well, God only sees right here. Because this is where his eyes are. This is where his gaze is fixed. No, you can't flee to a different place and escape the gaze of God. Because the totality of God in all of the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his being is present in every point of space. Yes, he's everywhere. But he is also immense in the totality of his being in every point of space. I can't, and, and, you know, so what am I going to shroud myself in? What am I going to hide? Am I going to hide in the darkness? Am I going to cry? David says, not even the darkness can hide me. Because the light of the glory of God causes the darkness to dissipate, to be gone. So what is God saying to Jonah as he seeks to remind him of his greatness? What is it that Jonah is forgetting? What does Jonah need to remind himself of? Basically this, Jonah, I am God Almighty. I'm the creator of the ends of the earth, the creator of the sea and the dry land and the stars and the heavens. I know the Ninevites. I know the Assyrians. I know every single one of them. I'm not unmindful of who they are, what they are, what they've done. Don't forget my greatness, Jonah. This has not escaped my notice. Jonah, you know what I am like. You know who I am. You know that I hate evil, that I despise evil. Jonah, let me handle it. And you trust me. You trust me. There's a second thing. A second thing Jonah forgot and that I've got to remember. I've got to remember this if I'm going to be freed of the imprisoning effects of wounds and fears that have to do with people outside my own skin, people outside my own skin who manage to get hooks in me and imprison me with fear and doubt and even evil. I've got to get a handle on this if I'm going to begin to get free. Second thing Jonah forgot is he forgot the goodness of God. And what he forgot in forgetting the goodness of God was the good purpose of God. He forgot the good purpose of God. Jonah made the same mistake the disciples would make centuries later. It's a mistake that you and I make all the time. We think that God chooses sides. We think that God chooses sides. The disciples, Acts chapter 1, this is so striking. I mean, they are the latter-day Jonas. This is so striking. The disciples in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, what do they ask him? Lord Jesus, you were dead. Clearly now you're alive. The gig must be up. This must be it. This must be the day and time. Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What's that? 
God, is this the time when you are going to vindicate your people and torch their enemies? Is this the time when you're going to demonstrate that you are on our side and they're going to see it? That's the mistake Jonah was making. Jonah's ethnocentrism. His conviction that the whole reason, the whole purpose for the existence of Israel was that God might vindicate Israel at the expense of the nations, the bad guys. We tend to think that God picks sides, that God is for us, but against them. There's a great passage in Joshua, the fifth chapter. I invite you to read it this week. Joshua is about to lead the army of Israel into the promised land. And what are they going to do when they go into the promised land? They're going to begin the work of cleansing the land and of establishing a holy place, a pure place for the name of God so that his people might dwell in that place in the midst of peace and blessedness. And as Joshua begins the conquest and just as he's about to go into the land, a man appears before him with a drawn sword. He's a warrior bent on conquest. And Joshua says to the man with the drawn sword, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And you know what the man with the drawn sword says? No. Now, if I'm Joshua, I take a step back and I'm saying, wait, this wasn't a yes-no question. This was a who-are-you-for question. Whose side are you on? No. Are you on our side or their side? No. But I come as the commander of the armies of the Lord. And the question, Joshua, is not whose side am I on? The question is whose side are you on? You're not the commander here. You're the soldier taking orders somebody else. Jonah lost sight of God's greater purpose, as did Joshua momentarily and as did the disciples later on. Jonah lost sight of the fact that God's great purpose, God's great intent, I've mentioned Genesis 3.15. You know I can't go through a sermon without mentioning Genesis 3.15. The seminal promise, the seminal verse in the whole of Scripture, the verse that promises that a warrior king is going to come, and what is he going to do? He's going to destroy the head of the devil. He's going to overturn the works of evil, which is why the warrior, when he appears to Joshua, appears in full battle regalia with his sword drawn, because he's going to war. He's going to war against the serpent and against evil. But his purpose, ultimately, is not to create a little enclave for one ethnic group so that they can enjoy the blessings of God. His purpose is to establish that people so that that people might be a blessing to the nations and, in fact, 
might give birth to the one who would be the blessing for all of the nations, the Ninevites included. And the people on the other side of the political divide from you, me, whomever, included. And the people who are members of that particular group that you find and I find so reprehensible so often, the purpose of God is not to establish a place for one ethnic group, one political group, so the blessings of God may rest upon them. His purpose is to establish that nation, that that nation might give birth to the Messiah, so that the Messiah might accomplish the purpose that God had given him to do, which is to deliver a people from all of the nations into the blessedness of the joy and fellowship of the God of heaven and earth. And notice at the end of chapter 4 this rather strange statement when God says, shouldn't I have compassion on this great city? There's 120,000 people in there. They don't know their right hand from their left, which means they are so imprisoned and confused and overpowered by evil. They don't know the difference between good and bad. Shouldn't I have mercy and compassion on them? Because there's also in that city a whole lot of cattle. But you see, you read that last verse in light of the first promise and the purpose of God, and you understand that God is not only about the business of redeeming a people, he's about the business of preserving, delivering, redeeming, restoring the whole of the creation. He cares about people, and he cares about cows. People at the apex, cows is representing the rest of the creation made by God for his glory and his purposes. And his purpose is to redeem and rescue the whole lot. And that's the purpose of God. And it's so interesting when the disciples say, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, none of your business. And what does he do? He sends them out into the nations. He does the very thing that God did with Jonah. He sends them out to the nations, the very peoples that the Israelites wanted to be toast. And he sends them out with a message, calling them to repentance, offering them forgiveness in the name of the greater Jonah who has come, who has lived, who's been cast into a far more turbulent sea swallowed by a far more serious fish, the wrath of God, so that they might be heralds of his great grace and forgiveness. And that's the third thing. Jonah forgot the greatness of God. He forgot the goodness of God expressed in his purpose. And finally, he forgot the compassion of God, the grace of God. He forgot it. I know we're going long. I know we've got communion ahead of us. But Jonah forgot the grace of God in his own life. The fish, I read the commentators, I think, man, you guys, I'm not that smart. I know that. You guys have degrees. You're smarter than I am. But the commentators say that the fish was an instrument of judgment. 
And the fish was not an instrument of judgment in Jonah's life. The fish was an instrument of deliverance. The fish saved Jonah from his rebellion. The fish saved Jonah from his sin. The fish saved Jonah from his hatred of Assyrians. The fish saved Jonah. And Jonah forgot it. He forgot that the grace of God in the first instance wasn't about the Ninevites. It wasn't about the Assyrians. The grace of God in the first instance was about him. My dear friends, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to be known for these seemingly irreconcilable but very true realities, God's holiness, his abhorrence of evil, and God's unimaginable grace and compassion The only way the world's going to see it is if they see it in us. It is right to find evil reprehensible. My dear friends, it is wrong for you and me to closet the love of God in our little sanctuary, in our hearts, in our groups, and not allow the radical overwhelmingly staggering grace of God to be manifested out there in the world among the Ninevites. The greater Jonah didn't run. The greater Jonah didn't flee. The greater Jonah came into this world and faced that horrific storm swallowed by that horrific fish as an expression of love for his enemies. And when I begin to lose sight of that, I begin to imprison myself in disdain. I begin to imprison myself in disgust. I begin to imprison myself in resentment and hatred toward those whom I perceive to be enemies. I hope you understand me. I'm not marginalizing. I'm not watering down at all the reality of evil. But what I am saying to you, I said at the very beginning, it is the reality of evil that makes the grace of God simply staggering. And I must never lose sight of the fact that the greater Jonah came for these Ninevites, so that these repentant and restored Ninevites might herald the goodness of his grace and compassion out into the world. God help us never to forget that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have set before us these emblems of the fact that you are the greater and more wonderful Jonah, who didn't flee, who didn't run, but who came to us Ninevites with compassion, with love, with self 
denying mercy and kindness to rescue us out of the prison of our own evil. Lord Jesus, help us not to forget it. And may your people be a people in the midst of the peoples who know that evil is evil and who know and who exhibit the fact that you, the God of great compassion, rescue evildoers from their evil. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Be with us as we come to your table. We ask in your name. Amen.